Something they always tried to teach us at Bible college is when you're given a sermon, you always got to start out with a really catchy story. And that'll get everybody's attention. And once you've got everybody's attention, then they'll just keep on listening for the whole of the message. Yeah, sometimes that works. Um, but I reckon it's got more to do with the substance of the message. It's got to be worth listening to. It's got to be something that, that helps us to realise, hey, this is really relevant for me. And with some Bible passages, the, the relevance is immediate. You know, the times when, when even as you're reading the reading itself or somebody else is reading it and you just hear it, it's like the Holy Spirit is right there speaking to your heart and you know that God is speaking to you personally, even just as you're hearing the Bible reading. Now, let me test the waters here. Has anybody ever felt that when you've read a passage of Scripture or somebody else has read a passage of Scripture to you and even before anybody's explained or anything, you've just really felt God is speaking to me. Has anybody ever felt that? Put up your hand if you've felt that. Oh, good, good. I was hoping that most of you would have felt that because the Lord does speak to us through his word. All right. Well, what about today? Now, I want you to be honest. I don't want you to give me the answer that you think that I want. I want you to be honest. You won't offend me. As we're reading the Bible reading just now, was anybody really struck with that reading? Was this one of those readings where you go, wow, God was really talking to me through that? Just put up your hand if that was the case. The first part? Yeah, where he was being gentle and how he, uh, yeah, how read, but he wasn't saying you're doing it all wrong, he's doing it in the spirit of peace. Yep, yep. Yeah, good. So there you go. God spoke to somebody through this reading. And, um, but the fact that most of us weren't suddenly struck didn't, didn't really surprise me. And this is where the job of a preacher comes in, or, or, or a Bible teacher. Today we're coming to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, and, and we're sort of in a section that most people wouldn't bother preaching on, because we sort of, well, we've got the well-known exciting bits that we, that we preach on usually, but here we are, and Paul's sort of closing up his letter. And I'll be honest, it's the sort of passage where if, if most of us were just reading it in our Bibles, in our daily Bible readings, we'd probably read just straight on through it and get to the end of it and go, eh, not really doing it for me today. And, and, but we would just plough our way through it so that we know that we have read it right, we've done our duty, we've read it, but... We're probably more thinking about getting to Corinthians because we're almost at the end of Romans and, oh, this is just the finishing up bit. But Corinthians, that's going to be more exciting. It's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit and stuff. I know there's a lot of good stuff there and we're just really keen to get there. But see, I don't reckon the Lord wastes words. Even as Paul is closing up this letter, I reckon there's some really important stuff here for us. And, and Alex just brought forward a truth there, which is really important for us. There's stuff in here that we really need to understand. And what I'm going to be sharing mostly about today is our need for preaching and teaching. And that's why I began the message in the way that I did today. Every truth of the scriptures is important, but it's not always immediately apparent. But even the basic truths of the gospel, and if you've been a Christian for more than a year... Then, then you probably should have a pretty good idea of the basics of the gospel. 
Even some of the older children amongst us should know very well the basics of the gospel just from learning it at Sunday school and listening at church. But we need to be reminded of these things and to be encouraged by them, even the basics of the gospel. Something I realised when I went to Bible college studying theology was some people aren't satisfied with the timeless truth of the gospel. Uh, they feel they always need to add something. I, I need to bring something different to the table. I bring something different out of it so that it'll be fresh and appealing to people. We just don't want the same old, same old. And I reckon that's why we've got so many crazy ideas out there. There's kind of many crazy theologies, stuff that just isn't biblical, but it's different. And you know when something's different, it'll get people's attention. And for some people, that's, they listen to it because it's different. But we don't need something different. We just need to be reminded and encouraged of the same old, wonderful, unchanging truth. There's an old hymn which goes, tell me the old, old story. And I reckon Roy would know it. Yeah? Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. And it then goes on to say, tell me the same old story. And then it describes how the same old story is the only source of comfort and hope that any of us can have in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new in Christianity. You know, Christianity's been around since Jesus was a boy. Hey, there's nothing new in it. And we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of the basic, unchanging truths of the gospel. We need to be encouraged by the same old story. If your faith is starting to feel a little bit empty, if you're starting to feel a little bit dry in your Christian walk with God, you don't need something different. You need the same thing. You just need a new experience and to see with new eyes the same old story. Because the gospel message that brought life to the early church is the same gospel message that brings life to us today. Now, in verse 14, Paul says to this church in Rome, right? So this is actually a letter that we wrote. He's writing a letter to the church in Rome. And he says to them, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Now, what was his satisfaction about in them? that they were full of goodness, that they were filled with all knowledge, and that they were able to teach, that they were able to instruct one another in the faith. Now, let me tell you, as a minister of a church, it is so satisfying to see the goodness of God coming through in a church. That is really satisfying. It is so satisfying when, when you know that the people in that church really understand the Christian faith, when you know that they really understand the things of God. And it is so satisfying when you know there are people there who are able to teach, when there's people there who can teach Sunday school, where there are people there who can teach RI at the schools, people there who can prepare a message for, for a Sunday morning. 
when, when the people can, are able to share their faith with an unbeliever, and when a goodly number of them are able to share the basics of Christianity with a new Christian and help them to grow in their walk with God. That is so satisfying. Do you know why? Because it means that God is at work in that church. It also means the preacher's been doing his job. Um, I've always thought the aim of a good Bible teacher is to make himself redundant. You know, the job of a good Bible teacher is to build others up in their faith, to build others up in their knowledge, to build others up to, to recognize and to step up to their ministry in the church. And thus, the Bible teacher becomes redundant. And so it also means that when God calls that minister away to another church or to another mission or to plant another church, he can go knowing that the current one's not going to all fall in a heap as soon as he steps out the door and that what God has begun is going to continue. But how does Paul know this? Right? He's never been to Rome. He's writing a letter to the church at Rome, introducing himself and, and, and saying, by the way, I'm going to, come and going to come and visit you shortly. How does he know that they're full of goodness? How does he know that they know stuff and that they're able to instruct one another? Well, he mightn't have ever been to Rome, but he's got some good friends who are members of that church there in Rome. In Acts chapter 18, it tells us about how when Paul went to Corinth, he met there a married couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Does anybody remember coming across their names in the scriptures? They, their names pop up a few times. Yep, a few hands go up. Aquila and Priscilla. All right, so Aquila and Priscilla were members of the church in Rome. They were Jewish Christians, though, who had been expelled from Rome. See, there came a time where the Jews were rubbing the, the town leaders in, in the wrong way a bit. And they said, right, that's enough. All Jews out of Rome. So every Jew had to leave Rome. And, and Aquila and Priscilla got caught up in this. And so they were expelled from Rome. And when they left Rome, they headed to Corinth. And that's where they met up with Paul. And not only that, they worked together with him, literally. Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. Does anyone know what occupation Paul was? He was a tent maker. And they went into business together and they made tents together. Now, I reckon if you're spending much time in the vicinity of the Apostle Paul, uh, I reckon it'd be a pretty fair bet that you're going to learn a lot of truth about the gospel. Can you imagine them working together there? No noisy sewing machines to, um, to, to distract them. Just sand-stitching away, making these tents. Can you imagine the education they would have got working together with Paul during that time? And then when Paul's mission then took him on to Antioch, guess who went along with him as missionaries? Aquila and Priscilla. But now the ban on, on the Jews in Rome has been lifted. And we know that Aquila and Priscilla are back in Rome. How do we know this? Because in the next chapter that we get to, chapter 16, Paul says g'day to him. He says, oh, by the way, say g'day to so-and-so, say g'day to so-and-so, and say g'day to, to Aquila and Priscilla for me. 
And so he knows that there's some people there who know the gospel really well. How? Because they worked with him and they went on mission with him. And he also knew that there was people there who were able to teach because he'd taken them as fellow missionaries. But he also knows a fair bit about the character of the place. He has a pretty fair idea of what the Roman church is like. He knows what its theology is. He knows what it's being taught and what they believe. By the way, does that word theology scare anyone? It sounds very academic, doesn't it? Yeah. Usually when we use the word theology, we're talking about academics. Do you know what the word theology means? Theos meaning God, ology, the study of. It is the study of God. Do you think there might be any theologians here? Did you know that every time you read your Bible, if you're sort of thinking, hmm, now what is this telling me about God? You know what you're doing? You're doing theology. Right? So don't, don't think of it as this academic out there thing. Theology is simply what you believe about God. Okay? Anyway, Paul had a pretty fair idea of what their theology was, of, of what they believed. Because you know, don't you, it's not hard to pick up what somebody might be getting taught from their church when you have a bit of a spiritual conversation with them. You know that, hey. Yeah, like even in our little town of St. George, all of our churches here have differences. We have different traditions, all right? The different ways we do things, the, the different ways we worship. And there, we all have our traditions, but we also have our different theologies, the different things that we believe. And if you're aware of, all the, of a number of the different types of traditions and different types of theologies, you generally don't have to speak with somebody for terribly long to work out what sort of teaching they're probably getting in their church. All you have to do is listen to their passion. What excites them? What excites them about Jesus? What excites them about the Christian faith? What do they want to talk about? What have they been learning? What have they been hearing in church? For instance, if when you're talking to somebody about matters of faith, they lament over how bad the world is and how other church, all those other churches, they don't speak the truth, but we do, and about how most people who claim to be Christians, well, they're not Christians at all because they don't do the things that we do. Well, there's probably a fair chance that they're probably getting taught a fair bit of legalism. But if you talk to another person about their faith and they say, oh, I'm so free. You know, you've only got to believe. It doesn't have to affect anything else. It doesn't matter what you do. Of course I can live with my girlfriend. That doesn't matter. Of course I can do these things. I'm living by grace. God won't judge me and you shouldn't judge me either. Well, if, if you're talking to somebody and that's coming across in, the, in what they believe, well, there's probably a pretty fair bet that they're getting taught some kind of easy believism, which does away with the place of repentance. But if then if you then talk to another person and they're most passionate about claiming blessings from God, you know, I, I need some more money for a new car or, or a bigger house or, or that the business is in trouble and so I'm believing for a bigger crop. You know, I'm believing for these things. God is going to provide them for me because I'm believing. Well, we might be, they might be coming from a church that regularly preaches a prosperity theology. But then you might be talking to another person 
who's really passionate about social action and, and protesting against what the government is doing with the refugees. Or they might be passionate about women's rights or land rights or, or gay rights or whatever rights are the flavour of the month. Well, they might come from a church that concentrates on a social gospel rather than a personal saving gospel. Right? You, you, you're getting the picture here. You don't have to spend terribly long with somebody discussing issues of faith to get a little bit of a picture of what their home church might be like and, and what kind of teaching they might be receiving. Of course, these days it gets complicated a bit more because we don't only get our teaching from our local church. Um, in, in this day and age of, of the internet, we, we can just download so many different messages from, from wherever. And then we've got Christian radio and Christian television all feeding into to what we're being taught. Anyway, we don't know exactly what Paul picked up on about the Roman church. But from the guts of the letter, we can see that he's not happy about some things. And maybe it's probably got something to do with their relationships between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. But that's not what's so important to us. What is important is what should be getting preached in our churches. Let's not concentrate on what shouldn't be. Let's concentrate on what should be getting preached in our churches. All right, so, so Paul knew that they were full of goodness, they were filled with all knowledge, and that they were able to instruct one another. Sounds like a dream church. Let it, let's go there. It sounds like the dream church. But in verse 15, he then goes on to say, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Alex picked up on the fact before that Paul was being very polite and loving in the way he shared stuff, yeah? Well, what I just read there, verse 15, was a very polite way, and a very long way, of saying, you've forgotten some really important stuff in your church. And I'm going to be bold in reminding you of this because I've got a duty to do it. And he doesn't use the word apostle there, but what he's doing is he's describing his apostleship. He, he is an apostle and he has authority and he has a duty to put them onto the right track and to remind them of what's really important. And so what's most important? Well, he's told them that he's been bold in already telling them what's important. So what's important? We just need to go back through the contents of the whole of the letter to the Romans and see what he's been teaching them. In the early stages, he's been teaching them about sin, righteousness and judgment. And he lays down the basics of the gospel. Everybody has sinned and the wages of sin is death. Therefore, nobody is righteous and therefore everybody is condemned. And that sounds terrible, but it's okay because there's hope. There is hope because Jesus died for sinners. And he describes then the grace of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He took the punishment that we deserved. 
But of course, that doesn't mean that we're all instantly saved. He then describes about how it's those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who are saved. And then in the middle of the letter, he starts reminding them that those who are in Christ are saved not to continue on in a life of sin, but we are saved to become new creations of God. This being saved business, it's a metamorphosis. It's a complete change that takes place in us. The Holy Spirit changes us. We, we are not the same as what we once were. Our behaviour must be holy. Our behaviour cannot continue to be the same as how people in the world behave. Part of our transformation is he gives us this renewed mind. And we are to live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then towards the end of the letter, he's reminding the church about love. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. He's boldly telling them what it means to love each other and how as Christians we should express our freedom in a way that is loving to the whole community. That's what he sees as important. Paul was proud of what Jesus had done through him. This got me thinking, what satisfaction is there in preaching? What satisfaction is there? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but being a preacher is a pretty thankless task, really. If everything goes really well, God did it. If everything goes really bad, the preacher did it. Um, even yesterday at, at Gordon's funeral, I was asked to preach at Gordon's funeral and, and it was a joy and a privilege to be able to do that. But afterwards, a, a, a whole bunch of people came up to me. It was all just glowing. Oh, it's wonderful to hear the gospel being preached. It's wonderful. And it's very easy for a preacher to get a swelled head. But when you understand that if anything good has come out of it, it's not, not you that's done it. It's God who's done it. The duty then becomes to deflect the glory to God. And so my reply is, oh, I'm glad you got something out of it. Isn't God good? You know? and, and, and if there's anything good came out of it, it was God's doing, not mine. Um, but then at the same time, there's other people who walk past and sort of scowl at you and think, oh, well, they weren't too happy with the message today. Um, that's okay. That's on me. Um, so where's the job satisfaction? It was really, really strange, you know, when, when I first uh, announced to my work colleagues at the Ag College that, that I was going to go and be a minister of a church, the, pretty much the standard reply was they'd sort of think for a minute, oh, not a whole minute, but mm-hmm, and then they'd say, oh, well, if that's what you want to do, if that's what's going to make you happy, that's going to be the best thing that you can do. And my reply to them would always stop them in their tracks. No, that's not what I want to do. I want to stay here and I want to continue farming. I love being a farmer. I'm really enjoying this job here at the Ag College at the moment. It's fantastic. Um, well, why, well, why are you going and doing it? Because God's told me to. And I don't want to leave what I'm doing, but I'm just being obedient to God. 
and I'm going to go and do it. Now, they could not understand that. If we're going and doing what we want to do, okay, I can justify any crazy thing that you come up with. But if it's not what you want to do, well, why would you do it? So why do preachers keep on preaching? Where's the satisfaction? I'll tell you why. Pride. What? Pride? Isn't that a bad thing? Isn't pride a terrible thing? Yeah, usually it is. Depends what you've got pride in. Sometimes pride is a good thing. In verse 17, Paul said, In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. But what was he proud about? His pride was in God doing the work through him. The miracles that were being done and the message that, that was being preached were being done through him, not by him. And that is one of the greatest satisfactions a preacher can ever have. When despite ourselves and despite all of our imperfections, and, and let me tell you, nobody is more aware of a preacher's imperfections probably than their wife. No, <laughs> maybe the preacher themselves. But when the Holy Spirit chooses to do a mighty work through you, despite your imperfections, and chooses to, to help people to hear the message and understand the message. That's what brings satisfaction. That's what will give me satisfaction today. If somehow the Holy Spirit has reminded you of what's important, if somehow he has helped you to understand the importance of seeking out good biblical preaching and teaching, if he has reminded you of the importance of your children being given the opportunity to learn, if he has reminded you of the importance of the basics of the gospel, if, if the Lord has touched your heart today and convicted you of something that needs to change in your life, that's the satisfaction. The knowledge that God has done something wonderful in somebody's life today. Can you imagine any greater satisfaction? There is none greater. And I want you to know, to know it's not only preachers who get that satisfaction. We've been talking about people teaching and preaching. But it's not only preachers who get that satisfaction. All Christians are given spiritual gift, gifts. I hope you understand that. All Christians are given spiritual gifts. If you are a Christian... The Lord has given you spiritual gifts. Now that means when you're obedient to God and when I'm obedient to God, when we actually use those spiritual gifts that God has given to us, God does his work through us. God does his work through you when you use your spiritual gifts. God does his work through me when I use my spiritual gifts. And my, how wonderful that is. But let's come back to the importance of preaching and teaching. Paul's pride was only 
in what God was doing. And I mentioned a bit earlier on some preachers are just always looking for something different. Uh, But we don't need something different. If it's not from God, it has no value for our growth in Christ. It has no value for Christian living. It has no value for salvation. A preacher's job is not to spruik on about the latest psychology or the latest research or to come up with a new interpretation of the gospel. The preacher's job is to preach Christ. It is to tell that same old story. It's to share biblical truth and the Holy Spirit does the rest. And I praise God that the Holy Spirit does the rest.